Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome everyone. We've got a very interesting show today. It's a trifecta. We're going to start off with a talk about Julian Assange and then we're going to talk about terrorism and the Hilton bombing and then finally about the fires that are going on and the effect that we're having from climate change. So I've got two special guests in the room with me today. Maybe John, if you could start off and just give me a little intro. I'm Dr. John Jiggins. I'm a former academic and journalist and a true crime writer. I've been a reporter for 4 Triple Z for four decades now, and the books I've written are The uh, Incredible Exploding Man about Evan Pederick and the Hilton bombing, Killer Cop and the Murder of Donald McKay, a follow-up to that called The Man Who Knew Too Much. The Killer Cop and the Murder of Donald McKay is about the, about the who and the why of the murder. The other one, The Man Who Knew Too Much, is about the how of the murder. Hi, I'm Edlin, and this is the first time on the radio, so I'm a little bit excited. Um, I'll just play some nice songs in between the talk and uh, explain a little bit what's going on in Germany maybe, like my point of view, because uh, I'm, like, as I did introduce myself last week as the rally, um, born in East Berlin, but grew up in capitalism and now I'm in Australia, married to an Australian. So you're a child of change then, if you're born in East Berlin? I call myself the wind of change, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> you were born before or after the war was... Just brought. a year before. Okay, definitely you've seen uh, a lot of change then in your life. Uh, Julian Assange is a controversial figure who revealed the brutal murder of civilians in Baghdad by a US helicopter crew. The video produced was called Collateral Murder and it stung the American establishment on both sides of politics. Bush on the Republican side because he instigated the war in Iraq that produced the murder and it was based on a lie that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. And of course on the other side of politics, Hillary Clinton who supported the, the wars against Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya and was always careful to be pro-Israel in any Middle Eastern conflict. 
Assange released Clinton's emails, which is argued to tip the balance in favour of Trump's presidential victory in 2016. The Paradigm Shift has done a number of shows about Julian Assange, but also we should mention Chelsea Manning. She really was the informant that gave him the collateral murder video. And of course, Edward Snowden, the only one of the three who are still at large. I wanted to ask you, John, why is it important to bring Julian Assange back to Australia where he grew up? Well, the important thing is to stop his extradition to the US because once he's extradited to the US, he'll just die in prison. In many ways, it's similar to the case of um, Mordecai Vanunu, who revealed um, Israel's sort of nuclear secrets. And after that, he was caught in a sort of honey trap, um, sort of very quickly moved to Israel, tried in a sort of closed courtroom, put in jail for 18 years. And since then, he's been refused the right to leave Israel. He's kept a prisoner in, his, in Israel. And Julian will face more or less the same fate. Assange really didn't get into the custody of the authorities until allegations of rape were, were made against him. Yeah, that's true, and it looks very much like a honey trap in that case too. There's a really good video on it called Sex, Lies and Julian Assange, which um, Four Corners produced in 2012, and I'd encourage anyone who's sort of interested in those allegations to watch that. One of the women still wanted to rectify the, the matters that she had raised, so there's still some outstanding matters there, I understand. Assange was always prepared to go to Sweden as long as they guaranteed him he would not get extradited to the United States. It's the refusal of that request which stopped him going to Sweden. And the Swedish charges do look like they're just, um, well, they were just a preparation for the extradition to the, U to the US. The US um, denied they were going ahead with, of, with the extradition until they actually had Assange in, his, in their hands and then they immediately pushed the um, 17 cases of um, breaking the Espionage Act and 175 years in prisons. One thing, uh, you're a journalist and a writer, I was, wanted to get your take on what Assange seems to have achieved in journalism. WikiLeaks seems to have broken new ground from my point of view, it's a very clever idea that he had that people could provide information and and WikiLeaks didn't know who they were and that information was encrypted. It tried to protect people. That, But then that really set alight a whole lot of different uh, arrangements that he had with um, establishment media. Could you give us an idea of what it means to you, what that that whole concept that he came up with. Well, I regard Julian Assange as the greatest citizen journalist of the 21st century. I regard myself as a citizen journalist in that um, my journalism is informed by my politics and by my role in a sort of society as a, as a journalist. And that's what motivates me. Most journalists are just paid by people like Murdoch and are quite prepared to lie with him. And I think that's the attitude with which the Triple Z newsroom was founded all those decades ago. We were convinced that um, a lot of the news we were reading was fake news and so we've been established to counter that fake news. Uh, you're on 4 Triple Z, the paradigm shift. It's We're community radio, we're independent voice. I'm just going to go to the... The part one of a three-part report that uh, John has so kindly prepared for us. In a watershed case for journalistic freedom, bases 18 charges under the 1917 US Espionage Act. If found guilty, he will serve 175 years in prison for crimes that include some of the greatest pieces of citizen journalism of the 21st century. The Iraq war logs, the Afghan war logs, Cablegate, and the famous collateral murder 
video. While 18 people were massacred in the collateral murder video, none of the perpetrators have been prosecuted. Meanwhile, the whistleblower and her publisher have been relentlessly hounded. Although Julian Assange is not a US citizen and should not be subjected to US laws, the US has pressured its client states into misusing their legal systems to corral Assange, abrogating to itself the right to prosecute and punish foreign journalists who reveal its war crimes. In his report on the treatment of Assange, Nils Meltzer, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture, declared that in 20 years of working with victims of war, violence and political persecution, he has never seen a group of democratic states, Sweden, the UK, the USA, ganging up to deliberately isolate, demonise and abuse a single individual for such a long period of time, with so little regard for human dignity and the rule of law. Mr Meltzer declared their systematic misuse of legal procedures was a form of legal torture and warned that Mr Assange's human rights would be seriously violated if he was extradited to the United States. He has been exposed through the past years to a relentless campaign of public mobbing, vilification and intimidation. He has also been exposed to, I would say, a sustained campaign of judicial harassment. And by this I mean the use of judicial power and judicial procedures for ulterior motives that are not really related to the formal reason for these judicial proceedings. Uh, he, is, he, he shows all the same symptoms that a person would show that has been exposed to prolonged psychological torture. Now, I believe that's the cumulative effect of various forms of cruel and human and degrading treatment that had, he has been exposed to over the past years.
So that was God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols. Yeah, they're having a go at fascism, you reckon? Well, maybe. <laughs> it's certainly looking that way all over the world that we should have a go at it. Yeah, well, it's growing, isn't it? Oh, yeah, especially in Germany as well, and it's scary. It is scary. Oh, really? Uh, like more than here, you think? You've, like you've been here a couple of times now. You're well, from East Berlin. Well, you know, we don't want to revisit our past in Germany, do we? Like we had that yeah. bad, bad thing happening and um, it still like it still raises my heart when I see what's happening in Germany right now like our nationalist party mm. is getting up there yeah and um, I don't like it like you know history is repeating itself and why are we a part of it I don't get it okay John we're going to go to the next part of uh, Julian Assange's report all right um well, um, this is uh, John Shipton, who's Julian Assange's father, also taking up the question of the condition Julian's being kept on in prison and the matters raised by Nils Meltzer of legal torture and misuse of a judicial system. OK, well, uh, just on that, um, John Shipton, he... Uh, Julian was born, I think, in Townsville, in 1971, so his and his mother, um, they, they they split up. The mum and dad is yeah, that right? Yeah, that split up. And mm. but the dad is now really supportive, and and part of this campaign that you're you're on now to bring him home. Oh, and the mother is too. Christine's supportive as well. Okay, so you've been. At, we'll talk a bit about that later. But mm. you're doing a tour around the countryside, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I've done a tour. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's go. Let's go to that part now. John Shipton, the father of Julian Assange, described the serious mistreatment Julian is presently subjected to the UK prison system. Julian hasn't had life-sustaining habits and life-sustaining opportunities now for uh, nine years. Nine years ceaseless persecution increasing in intensity with a trajectory that aims to destroy the details of which you know uh, if I recite them I get a bit upset of particular concern for Mr Shipton were the reports that Julian was hotboxed before his recent court appearance Hotboxing refers to keeping someone in an overheated situation and denying them water so they become dehydrated and confused. You can see that in that last court appearance that Julian made before Judge Baraitza, he couldn't remember his name and couldn't know his birthday. Now, previous to that appearance, he'd been stripped, searched, and put in a hot, what the prisoners called a hot box. Philip Siegel and Sidney Barrister and Greg Barnes, a uh, Melbourne barrister, wrote, along with 10 other barristers, that in their whole career spanning 50 years of criminal, of defending people, they're criminal, they're criminal law barristers, in their 50 years of defending people, they had never, ever, seen a person brought before the court in that condition ever usually the judge would say to him well that he's not fit to plead today take him away now due process has two elements one is that um the person has access so arm can arm themselves can arm themselves to defend themselves and that's with uh, barrister or and papers and so on and be well enough to plead that's part of due process we, as you can see due process is never followed in Ju Julian's case ever it is it is torture it's 22 hours a day banged up by yourself staring at the ceiling Julian in order to regain some stability uh, of health 
and mentality, he asks, um, asks us, how far is it from Madrid to Paris? And we tell him the answer, and he walks up and down his cell in a, a journey from Madrid to Paris, counting the footsteps as three metres. Counts them all up day by day, and so his journey is to Paris. When I go to meet him, they clear all the hallways and escort him down a guard on either side in these empty black echoing hallways into the meeting room. Above your head, there are high fidelity cameras that uh, enable lip reading if they want. That's, and then every few meters, there's another camera, general fidelity camera. In his cell, Every 30 minutes, somebody comes and opens the peephole and looks in and then closes the clack, close it open, all 24 hours a day. This circumstance is described by Nils Melzer as torture. It's, and it also, it's not by itself. So as I mentioned before, there's been nine years of it in steadily increasing intensity. Our government knows this because we get the FOIs from our government. But they say, they repeat like a manstra, due process, due process, over and over again. And because we don't know what due process consists of, we swallow this hook. We think, oh, well, you know, they're genuine. They're not genuine. Okay, that was John Shipton. Uh, you go tell us about the next part now, John. Yeah, okay. Well, um, I suppose we should do a bit of a back announce. This is our paradigm shift on uh, 4ZZZ. I'm John Jiggins. We've just heard from John Shipton, the father of Julian Assange, on the um, treatment of Julian in the prison system. And the next one, we're going to hear a bit more from Nils Meltzer, the UN special rapporteur on torture and um, Julian's father, um, John Shipton. And the um, point they both make is that the um, US and the UK uh, have just disregarded international conventions when it suits them. The call by Australia, the UK, Sweden and the US for the Assange team to follow due process is hypocritical. In 2016, a UN working party ruled that the British blockade of the Ecuadorian embassy where Assange had sought asylum amounted to arbitrary and illegal detention. But both Sweden and the UK ignored the UN ruling. The contempt for Assange's human rights was again manifested in their dismissal of the finding of the UN special rapporteur on torture, Niels Melser who gave them this advice. The involved states realize that the way they have handled this affair is in violation of the Convention Against Torture and that they must uh, take measures to alleviate the psychological pressure on Mr. Assange. If there are criminal offenses that he uh, is alleged to have committed, by all means he needs to respond to that in a court of law, but then he needs to be given adequate means to prepare his defense, he cannot be under the constant threat of being extradited to the United States where he is not going to receive a fair trial. Um, so, so it's very important to, to start alleviating the pressure that is being put on him uh, that is not necessary and that is not in line with any normal judicial proceeding under the rule of law. Julian Assange was always aware of the US's hidden intentions to try him under the Espionage Act when he fled to the Ecuadorian embassy. As John Shipton said... I mean, for nine years he's realised that if he goes to the United States, that's the end. He's fought for nine years not to go to the United States. He's well aware that it means death. Uh, OK, well, you've been listening to um, John Shipton... Julian Assange's father and uh, Niels Meltzer talking about uh, the case of Julian Assange. Um, his trial for extradition comes up on the 25th of February. 
And uh, in Brisbane, there's a Brisbane Assange support group which meets at 19 Doorknock Terrace, West End, uh, every Tuesday at 6pm if you're interested in joining the campaign. Thanks, John. And now we're going to listen to Nina, one of my favourite songs of my childhood. It's uh, in German called 99 Luftballons. Um, it's the English version, so it's 99 air balloons, basically just saying um, stop the war, um, what would happen if tomorrow war breaks out and nobody would come. Exactly nothing. You, you brought her balloon with you. Yeah, it's my little balloon here. It's uh, it brought me here today. Luckily, <laughs> bit of a I'm struggle. Bad you made it. <laughs> yeah, well, enjoy. You and I in a little toy shop, buy a bag of balloons with the money we've got, set them free at the break of dawn. To one by one they were gone. Back at base, box. Software flash the message Something's out there Floating in the summer sky on the paradigm shift we're with uh, John Chiggins and Adlin and we're going to another segment now where we're going to talk about uh, the Hilton bombing I'll just give my little spiel on this to and just to get John keyed up it would have been good if we could have had a, a bit of a face-off because 
We've got one person in the studio who wrote a book about the Hilton bombing, and the other one has just put his out. We've got both books here, but I just couldn't get Imre along, you know. It would have been a great to see a toe-to-toe battle between left and right. <laughs> anyway, I'll give you my take on it. Uh, Imre Salazinski has... The reason why we're doing this is that this journalist, Imre Salazinski, has just produced a biography of the convicted Hilton bomber. This book defends the special branch, ASIO and armed forces against allegations that they were somehow involved in the Hilton bombing. John here, you you, you wrote your book, uh, The Incredible Exploding Man, in the early 90s. What's, what's your take on this new book? Uh, well, essentially it's an authorised um, biography of Evan Pederick by um, Imre. He, um, you just get Evan's point of view the whole time. Like, he doesn't interview anyone else. He um, criticises me, but he didn't ring me up and talk to me about it He uh, to find out what I think. He, and he doesn't really talk to anyone else. This is just uh, an attempt to reconstruct Evan because Evan has been disbelieved for three decades and finally someone's come along who believes in him and is uh, publishing his story. The reason for that is unless they have Evan Pederick as the Hilton bomber, then you actually have the real bombers, which are New South Wales Special Branch and ASIO. And it's necessary not to have that situation because ASIO's been given so much money, they're now in a position where um, they're watching all of us and uh, we must believe that they are good people. When, as you and I both know, like back in the 1970s, we were persecuted by a special branch. They would keep files on all of us and on me and you. My first file, my file starts when I win a bursary from the Meat Workers Union for having the best results of um, any of their members, of the children of, of any of their members um, in the, I think, senior or junior in the 1960s. So they open their file on me because I'm a smart working class boy and um, that's generally the way they operated. They concentrated on the left and they um, were very widely disliked during the Vietnam War and uh, there was a huge campaign to get rid of them. There was a group called the Campaign Against Political Pil- Police and, and that's what the Hilton bombing's all about. It's never intended to kill anyone, what's intended is for it to be a propaganda coup by the New South Wales Special Branch so they won't get abolished because that's what's happening at the time. Um, In South Australia, Don Dunstan uh, abolished his Special Branch and they were considering doing the same thing to the New South Wales Special Branch two weeks before the bombing happened. So the questions and ASIO after the bombing gets you know all this new funding so the you know the question is who benefits from the bombing and it's ASIO and special branch who don't get abolished Um, so it looks very much like they're the ones who have done it. Well getting back to Evan Pederick uh, he was a member of the Ananda Marg um, a very spiritual organization who had a, a leader in India who'd been jailed. They were trying to free, free that leader. Free Baba was, I used to see the slogans all around West End. Oh, they um, were the world's greatest <laughs> bloody graffitiers, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I suppose I should declare an interest in this in that I did share a prison cell with Evan Pederick on one occasion. It was on the eve of the 1977 state election. Democratic rights had been suspended street marches were banned and I found myself in the cell with um, in the South Brisbane Watch House which was full of about 197 other people. Evan was one of them and he scratched his name on the wall of a cell if I remember it correctly and he also scratched some sort of slogan. It meant that this Watch House sergeant immediately got him for willful damage and he'd basically (laughs) owned up by having his name signed there. So uh, they not only charged him with disobeying a lawful direction, illegal street march, but also willful damage to the cell. (laughs) 
Mm. Now, when you, when you, oh, this is the second time I've heard this story, but f the first time you heard the story, you contrasted the story as you remember it with the, the way Evan records it in the book. So do yeah. you want to go through that? What's the difference? Yeah, the difference is that um, as told to Imre Salazinski, he says that he spray-painted the cell wall. Now, that was not possible on several levels. There were, we were, there were about 40 of us crowded into the cell, including the future Attorney-General of Queensland, Matthew Foley. We had uh, visits from Terry O'Gorman, who was the civil liberties lawyer, trying to bail people out. The Watch House sergeant was running backwards and forwards. All of our possessions had been confiscated and meticulously written down. So for someone to get a spray can in there seems very <laughs> unlikely. And it wouldn't have gone down too well in that, in that august company either. I mean, we, we, were, we were there because Bjorki Peterson had suspended democratic rights and, and we, we were there for a reason where most of the people were heavily involved in the anti-Uranium movement. We didn't want the mining and export of uranium. A lot of the uranium was going to Germany, to Hamburg, to go into your nuclear fuel cycle. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, not. it's not your fault. I mean, they bought it from this crazy <laughs> premier who's a front man for the mining companies. So, I Yeah, the point I wanted to make is the way Evan exaggerates things. He's not a reliable witness and... The reason um, I called him the incredible exploding man because his stories are just so unbelievable. You know, he um, claims to be the Hilton bombing, but when you examine them, um, his stories just don't fit. Do you want to... I suppose you've got a question on that. We're running out of time. Yeah, no, um, I was just going to ask you firstly, why would a senior journalist, he's produced this book, The Hilton Bombing, he's got affiliations to the Liberal Party... Why would the, he decide to publish a book about this topic 40 years later? Well, there's been a, another book uh, published only a couple of years ago by Rachel Landers, um, which is called Who Bombed the Hilton? Oh, she launched it at the IPA, the Institute for Public Affairs, who are similarly sort of right-wing. There's been an attempt to um, improve the image of ASIO, Rachel Landers and her book, to give her credit, isn't crazy enough to revive Evan Pederick. She instead blames another Margie. Um, but she isn't, uh, you know, like, um, there's all these faults with her book too, but uh, at least she's not, she accepts the fact that Evan Pederick has told so many different versions of the story he's not worth reviving. Okay, now we're on the paradigm shift. It's coming up to quarter to one. I'm just going to play this song. It's got a German title. Adeline, maybe you can... Yes. What is that about? Uh, that's, uh, like, the band is called Annenmai Kantereit. It's one of my favourite bands at the moment because he's just got such an amazing voice. And the song is called Ich gehe heute nicht mehr tanzen, which would translate to I don't go dancing anymore today because I'm just going to sit at home, smoke my weed and um, relax because in Germany, you know, the laws about drugs are not as hard as over here. Like drugs are, drugs are obviously like drug dealing is um, not a good thing. And I totally agree with that. But we don't, you know, punish those people that are addicted to drugs. Like, you know, if you ask me, I would decriminalize them, but nobody asks me anyway. So, well, you know, we... we press for that. You're sitting in the right room here. He's one of the major campaigners for decriminalisation. Yeah, like nobody's <laughs> killed anybody on weed, really, you know, like, yeah. Anyway, that's the song and Ich gehe heute nicht mehr tanzen and that's really cool. Yep, good, we'll play the song. Mal war, will ich heute nicht hin. 
Weil da immer die gleichen Leute sind Und weil ich müde bin Müde, müde, müde bin Und weil ich müde bin Weil ich müde, müde, müde bin Ich glaube, ich gehe heute nicht mehr tanzen ich glaube, ich gehe heute nicht mehr raus. Ich glaube, ich rauche heute Pflanzen und bleib allein zu Haus. Ich glaube, ich gehe heute nicht mehr tanzen. Ich glaube, ich gehe heute nicht mehr raus. Ich glaube, ich rauche heute Pflanzen und bleib allein zu Haus. Nach einem Western Die Jungs mit Revolvern Helfen vergessen, dass man Trinkt, um zu vergessen Mein Magen sagt, ich müsste was essen Ernähr mich seit Wochen nur noch von Resten Vietnamesisch neben dem Bett Ich hab nie was im Kühlschrank Ich warte noch immer darauf, dass ich wieder fühlen kann ich warte noch immer darauf, dass ich wieder fühlen kann Ich suche bei Netflix nach einem Western Ich glaube, ich gehe heute nicht mehr tanzen Ich glaube, ich gehe heute nicht mehr raus Ich glaube, ich rauche heute Pflanzen Und bleib allein zu Haus ich glaube, ich gehe heute nicht mehr tanzen. Ich glaube, ich gehe heute nicht mehr raus. Ich glaube, ich rauche heute Pflanzen. Und bleib allein zu Haus. Ich gehe heute nicht mehr tanzen. That was Anand Mai Kanterai with the song Ich gehe heute nicht mehr tanzen. And what does it mean? I don't go dancing anymore today. Very good. <laughs> okay, John, a big question. In three minutes, the time of a rock song, can you outline the case against Tim Anderson that was largely put forward by Evan Pederick? Well, the thing to remember about Evan is he's um, a paranoic. I, he's got delusions of grandeur, and his particular delusion of grandeur is he wants to be the Hilton Bomber. So his story changes three times, and each time it sort of um, reacts to evidence which proves him wrong. So I'll, I'll go through it as quickly as I can. The first story he tells is that um, he's standing outside the... Hilton Hotel. He's put a bin, a, a, a bomb in the rubbish bin and he's got a remote control device. He sees Moraji Desai, the Indian Prime Minister, 
turn up at the George Street entrance of the um, Hilton Hotel for this Chogram meeting. He's greeted by Malcolm Fraser. Evan then tries to explode the bomb and uh, doesn't go off. Evan pisses off back to Brisbane. Desai wasn't ever there, was no, he? No, I'm going, I'm going yep. to do this. Sorry. Okay, so <laughs> now they hold that for a while and then... Um, that's the... Uh, when Evan first goes to court, that's what he's charged with, the attempted murder of um, Maraji Desai, and that's the story he pleads guilty to. Then Malcolm Fra Fraser, who's the Australian Prime Minister at the time of the Hilton bombing, reads the report and gets one of his people to contact the New South Wales police and says, that could not have happened. Maraji Desai did not arrive at the George Street entrance. We brought him around into the Pitt Street entrance because of a demonstration outside. So this creates a bit of a problem. So they have to sort of patch the story. And the way they sort of patch the story is by saying Evan didn't know what the person he was going to kill looked like. And instead he sees the Sri Lankan president, Junius Jail Wardner, turn up and that he then attempts to blow him up. So that's the what Evan, uh, that's what Tim Anderson faces in the trial, that sort of thing, that accusation. Now, during the trial, um, and Evan, uh, Arnie Tease, the copper who's running the case, produces a policeman to say jail wardener arrives at the right time, which is 3pm, which is when Evan says he tries to detonate it. Was so, there any similarity in appearance between Desai and Jail Woodner? No. I can't see any similarity. No. That one wears a hat, the other one doesn't. Yes. Um, they don't really look alike to me. <laughs> no, no, and if you're going to assassinate someone, you should at least know what they look like. <laughs> you shouldn't just kill someone of the nearest ethnic group. Um, so that, but th that story falls apart during the trial because Anderson's defence produces all this evidence that proves Jail Wardner arrived at nine in the morning. So that falls apart and it looks like it's in a complete hole, it's complete victory for Tim Anderson. So then um, they invent the third version of it and the third version of it um, is that he didn't see... All, all the stories about watching the limousine turn in, the man get out, you know, greeted by Fraser. Um, that was wrong. In the third case they put, uh, and is argued by Tedeschi, the lawyer, and he never puts it to Pederick, which is... Because um, Pederick won't agree to it at the time, though he now agrees to it. And the third version is that what Evan sees is... Um, uh, Maraji Desai when he leaves the Hilton Hotel at 5pm. So, and that's the story they run towards the end of the trial. So they they keep changing the goalposts repeatedly. They keep using Evan's story to sort of back up all these different narratives. So I'll leave it there. But Tim Anderson was convicted by the jury um, based on that. Oh, no, it was shocking. I was... Uh, yeah, it was one of the most sort of shocking things I've ever seen because, you know... You're right there. It's, yeah. It, it was unbelievable and they um, it gets appealed and it gets sort of, you know, kicked out by the Supreme Court because it's um, such an improbable story and um, Tedeschi had cheated in all these ways, which I won't go into. So okay, we, well... We've got other things to run. Yeah, we might just... Um do a little bit of a wrap-up now of last week's uh, SAC SCOMO rallies. Um, last week we had a shift in the political climate with well-attended rallies in Brisbane and Sydney. Um, in, in Sydney they got about 35,000 people, Brisbane about 10,000. Um, unfortunately the rally in Melbourne was poorly attended because the, of the weather and because um, the Andrews Labor government came out against the rally. So even though it, it was a rally to, to sack a Liberal Prime Minister, <laughs> the Labor Party came out against the rally, oh uh, warned people off, and I think the line that Andrews was pushing was, we'll take care of it, meaning the bushfires and climate change. Anyway, so um, 
the um, the only parties who's gaining votes out of all of this is the Greens. Uh, it normally hovers around about 10%. It's now edging up towards 12 So the Greens are ahead of the game in terms of recognising climate change and 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 what is happening with the, the bushfires. Um, so uh, the paradigm shift was there at the rally. Um, we did make a number of recordings, which we won't have time to play all of them, but the spokesperson for the Greens uh, was Jonathan Shree, who's uh, a councillor for the Gabba, and so we'll play what he had to say. This is an excerpt of his speech. It's not everything that he said, but it's the part of the speech that he asked ethical journalists to play. Is it the individuals and corporations who have committed, who have contributed the most to this climate disaster are the ones who should be paying to fix it up? We levied that. If we just charge mining companies a levy of one dollar, one measly dollar per tonne, that would raise a billion dollars in three years. And we could put that money towards frontline services, we could put that money towards water bombing aircraft, we could put that money towards paying indigenous rangers to manage country sustainably. And I think really that's where I'm on about today, that this is not about Scott Morrison. As others have said, they'll just replace him with some other liberal leader who's equally problematic. This is about the need for system change. I hate to break it to you, but this one is probably not going to fix the problem. But what it will do is, is set the board rolling, and I have to say, in the last few years, and as a politician, I've seen that these sorts of protests, these public gatherings, are making a significant difference to the political landscape. They are putting pressure on in all the right places. But we also know that change begins locally, at the local level, from the bottom up. That's why I've gotten involved as a local city council. It's been interesting that even six months ago, the Liberal National Party dominated council who sits in City Hall here refused to beg in support for a climate emergency declaration. They could not even do that. We skipped spring this year. No more time for natural cycles, new beginnings, sprouting seedlings. We jumped straight into the middle of summer. And the forests burned worse than napalm bombs. And the choking smog haunted our cities. Like the ghosts of all those roasted animals and trees that travel all the way into the central business district seeking revenge. Infiltrating the windpipes and irritating the eyeballs of the arsonists who masquerade as bankers and mining CEOs whispering, you did this to us. We create kindling from wolf guns. Wipe the smug from our windows. No weather forecasts have become headline news now. My social calendar is all fundraisers and protests. What rating of face masks do I need to protect my lungs from vengeful airborne fragments of an incinerated ancient forest? School kids going on out on strike. Rest of us too scared to join them. Program to vent on social media daily as long as we aren't late for work. You know who I'd like to see go on strike? The workers who repair air conditioners for mansions and penthouses. Let's see films, photos, jokes and prayers once his aircon takes a Hawaiian holiday. How many towns ran out of water last year? How many firefighters lost their lives this year? How many Timorese ran out of food last year? How many Indonesians flooded out this year? And now us naive machine cogs finally pulling our heads out of the sand. Outrage brought over, saying, why aren't they doing something about this? Why aren't these powerful people listening to us? Don't they realise how serious this is? You still don't get it. They make more money from disaster. Every bushfire and cyclone, their profits rise faster. Suck the aquifer dry, then jack up the price of boiling water. Climate refugees? Better pay us to secure your borders. Insurance companies making profit out of misery. And Scotty for marketing's just a puppet for kleptocracy. All we got now is a charred black and shadow of democracy. Public money pays to propaganda to burn They try to exploit it, build the missiles and then sell them to both sides. Make a mess, then get paid to clean it up. And meanwhile, 
This burnt, thirsty country is wondering where the winds are going to blow us next. But they are undone grieving for lost futures. I'm in it for the futures that are still yet to germinate. We've been fighting for a while now. We've fought a little longer. And then the smoke clears, we'll be ready to regenerate. That was Jonathan Shree in King George Square last week. What's happening this week, Adeline? So today um, we're going to have another rally and that starts at 5 o'clock at King George Square. So I expect all of you to be there um, because, you know, we only got mon- one Mother Earth and she doesn't like what we're doing. She's burning us. She's flooding us. What's next? I think it was the pests or something. Hmm. And um, so get out there, shout, scream, Get, get all your anger out about our government because it's not, like, we don't want to support that. And, um, yeah, the next song we're going to play is um, A House Is Not A Motel by the band Love and the album, it's called Forever Changes. So we'll see ya. my house I've got no shackles you can come and look if you want to through the halls you'll see the mantles where the light shines dim all around you and the streets are paved with gold and if someone asks you you can call my name You're just a thought that someone, somewhere, somehow feels you should be here And it's so for real to touch, to smell, to feel, to know where you are here And the streets are paved with gold and if someone asks you, you can call my name You can call my name I hear you calling my name Time that I'm through singing The bells from the schools of wars will be ringing More confusions, blood transfusions The news today will be the movies for tomorrow And the waters turn to blood And if you don't think so, go turn on your tub And if it's mixed with mud You see it turn to grey Then you can call my name I hear you calling my name 